eight of season three of Matiri Egemi, a bi-weekly podcast where we help you learn the Ayekoyo culture, history, and heritage in English and in a fun, light-hearted way. I'm Jerry Wadiho, your anchor, Nademo Jiro Wabarea Kehara. And as always, I'm joined by Wayaki Wageshaga and King Oriwa Kanye. Today, we'll be talking about the man, the legend. A man who said that my blood will water the tree of independence. Who is this man? Who is this legend? Who is this prolific writer? Who is this uniter, this great leader that led the Liberation Army and helped bring the end of colonialism close to us? Who is this man who fought for our lands? Who is this man who fought for our freedom? Who is this man who fought for our way of life, our spirituality? This man is none other than Field Marshal Dedan Kimathi. And today, we tell his story in a unique way. So I urge you to lean in and help us honor the history, the life of this great man. Well, here we are. Wayaki, who are we talking about today? Uh, today, uh, we're talking about a culmination of this series of heroes and heroines we've been talking about. This is a hero of a hero, a legend, uh, a living legend uh, who is still with us today here in spirit, uh, but was instrumental to uh, the resistance movement, to Kenya's freedom. Uh, we are talking about Dedan Kimadi. Wow. All right. So why don't you introduce Field yourself? Uh-huh. Let me add that. Um, yes, uh, my name is Wayaki Wageshaga, Musharawa Barea Muturi, Hamari Kamawada Nidewa Mwagi, Kashiarone Maina. And I'm happy to be here and I'm excited to hear this story and to contribute to uh, his legacy. Beautiful. King Ori. All right. Oyone King Ori wa Kanyi, Mubuiwa Barea Marigo. And you know, we're going to be talking about a gentleman who hails from my area. Ah. Yes, okay. yes, yes. So today, uh, you'll give me permission. Mm. As I tell this story about Dan Kemathi, to tell it from some personal lenses. Mm. Because his story weaves in with the story of our family mm. in okay. some, some areas. Mm-hmm. So you'll hear me talk about um, contributions from our family. So I think it's going to be a unique way of telling the story that uh, we know a lot about Dedan Kemathi. I yeah. mean, Dedan Kemathi is the iconic freedom struggle. He's like our Che Guevara. You know, you think mm-hmm. about the Mau Mau movement right. and you see that image yeah. of, you know, him in dreadlocks yeah. and unfortunately in cuffs. Right. Mm-hmm. But who was he? Right? Yes. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk about that. Um, so, you know, Dedan Kimathi was born in 1920. He was born uh, to a gentleman called Washiori and his mother was called Waivodi. Mm. 
Mm. And um, he was born Dedan Kemathi Wawashio. That's the name that they gave him from the onset. And uh, this is an, in a um, village called Vegege. Mm-hmm. Uh, again in Teto, North Teto. And he went to school to uh, he went to school at the age of 15. Those days, if you can even make it to school, mm-hmm. it was amazing. And he went to Karona Ine uh, Primary School. Uh, and later he did attend Tomotomo Secondary okay. for a short time. Okay. But, um, you know, what we learn about him as a youngster is a, that he had actually a very calm uh, temperament. He was a gentleman um, and his friends really liked and he was in, he was likable. He was a likable character. Mm-hmm. But he was also very intolerant to any injustice. You know, so he would defend his friends easily and he would defend himself easily and it kind of gave him uh, a reputation of a rebel to his teachers employers you know because he had that if he felt like you're you know impeding on his rights yeah. he, mm-hmm. he easily would get agitated and just you know want to do something about it mm-hmm. right um he still he said to have been very tall light skinned uh yeah man um who uh, in 1938 went through the circumcision mm. you know he went through the initiation to be a man uh that happened in hororo uh and joined what they call zukia mataha or oregeshori rika and regiment of young men soon after that he did join uh the king's african rifles where and that's the thing around 1941 Uh, so this is when World War II mm. was uh, peaking. Mm-hmm. Um, he would be deployed to Burma. Uh, the story says that he was kind of rebellious to um, his leadership there. So he didn't stay long. He was kicked out. Um, and I th- or either kicked out or deserted. The story is not always. It depends on who's telling the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but three months is all he ever served. served. And then he came, he found his way back. Um, it also kind of is the same time that you know mm. is is happening mm-hmm. 1941 ish to 43 what is that oh, the, Ngara- the famine the Ngara- famine Ngara- yeah. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the cassava famine if mm-hmm. we could if we would uh, translate directly mm-hmm. and it's interesting because what's happening is um, very key to understanding the resistance movement with this mm-hmm. Ngaragu mm-hmm. Um a lot of farming is now in the hands of the colonial settler, mm-hmm. right? Lands have been taken away from the Mogekoyo. Yeah. And they've been pushed to more and more arid areas. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that they are now uh leaning on is crops that were not always traditional. Ah, like what? So, um anyway, let me take a step back okay. on the diet issue. Uh-huh. There was a time where Mogekoyo ate a lot of miaga, uh, cassava. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time that was like the, one of the main staple foods that we ate. Okay. Like we used to make fufu. Mm-hmm. Like gima. Ah. When we say gima, mm-hmm. gima is go kima, you know, to hey. you know to to pound something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um what it was initially was mm-hmm. things like cassava. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then corn kind of kind of became uh, a bigger thing. Um, it was always there mm-hmm. but it became bigger with the um, colonial farming it became more mm-hmm. central it became yeah. more central yeah and it was happening now in large scale by the colonizers that were doing that the settlers mm-hmm. 
And so um, it, it changed the diet for all of Kenya to where corn was being pushed uh, to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people, now Gatheri was big and Ugali was secondary, mm-hmm. but now Gatheri was a thing people were eating. And, right. don't, and don't forget, we're talking about the diet really changed because the traditional foods were like greens and things of that nature, potatoes, mm-hmm. you know, things, yeah. all manner, it was very varied. Yam, yams. Yeah, yams. Uh, yeah, we and and now Gideri is becoming like the poor man's dish yeah. that's balanced that mm-hmm. you can get away with and you can eat. And remember, people are being taxed; they're getting poorer. They don't have mm-hmm. livestock. There's a we'll talk about something called kifagio that came soon after. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- th- cattle, you know, cattle and, and goats have been taken away. So now people are becoming poorer, mm-hmm. and they're eating Gideri. And then the and then the corn stops coming in during this Ngaraguya Miyaka. Because there's a genuine famine, but it's exacerbated by exportation Mm. of Mm. grain. Yeah. Now, Bengal famine is another very popular famine Mm -hmm. that we read about in the same year, in 1942, 43, 44. Mm -hmm. The Bengal famine is famous Mm. for killing millions of Indians. Indians, yeah. Right? And we see something happening there where Churchill at this time is the prime minister in England or, or the Britain. And um, they decide that they're going to redirect mm. food or ship food away from India to support the war effort in Europe. Yeah. Wow. During that famine. During the famine. Mm-hmm. And people die in droves. Oh millions. I don't know what the exact numbers are. We are affected by the same Oh, yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. at that same time. So it really exacerbated. We don't even have numbers of how many people died during that Mm -hmm. particular famine. But Mm -hmm. if you talk to, because this is recent enough, Mm -hmm. if you talk to a grandparent today, they will tell you about it. They'll remember. And it really drove people to a level of desperation um, um, that, you know, that was untold. But around this time, going back to Dan Kemathi, that's when he, he kind of, once he returns home, he goes to Tomotomo Secondary School for a little bit. Uh, he could no longer pay fees and he was expelled. So let me pause you there. So he returned from, he, he fought in the Second World War. He did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, he, he was did. returning home from the Second World War. Exactly, yeah. he did. He didn't fight for as long as people sometimes imagine. Right. But right. he did fight. For like okay. three months. Right? Something like that. Yeah. Okay. It'll be hard to find like exact, accurate yeah, numbers, yeah. but that's kind of part of the story. Says he wasn't there for too long. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he's back home. He's gone to school. He's he's left, uh, and this is kind of where um, we meet him because uh, around that time, forty-four or something or so of the sort, um, he goes to work at um, a farm called Varwa, Varwa mm. Farm in Kenny, kind of a remote area. Um, people who know those areas next to, close to like Ipia. It's pretty kind of dryish areas. Uh, he goes to, f- to work for Amzungu. Um, and that's where he meets our family because okay. that's where our family was actually located at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. People had been, we'd been kicked out of Teto. Right. Uh, people had to go look for jobs. And where we could, the only place to do it was the settler farms. The settler farms. Yeah. And this is one of those farms that. Um, such farm. So our family was there. Mm-hmm. So my dad was now, you know, a, a youth, probably eight, nine, ten years at that time. The way Kemadi was around, and um, you know, while Kemadi was there, he's known to have 
kind of been a, some kind of a supervisor role is what he was playing mm-hmm. uh, in this farm uh, and everyone's time mm. was required of them during the day you know the people belong to yeah. them zongo during the day yeah mm-hmm. in the evening kemadi started teaching kids how to read and write ah. and this is how my dad learns to read and write wow, wow. directly from directly from kemadi yeah. wow so this is what he was doing in the evening and then at night the kids would seed ground for the older kids mm. and my two uncles my dad's or elder brothers my mm-hmm. dad is the last born mm-hmm. his elder brothers would now go to listen to the seditious juicy uh, information coming from Dan Kemathi he's now starting to radicalize them. Mm. yeah and this is the way now Dan Kemathi starts because he has ideas but he doesn't have a platform yeah mm-hmm. so he's talking to these young people and telling this is not right you know he, this 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 gentleman who's like concerned about the injustices mm. starts to really talk about what's going on and that's mm-hmm. kind of um uh what starts to happen now in 45 there's a thing called kifagio operation mm. and in it had started earlier the destocking actually it started even in the 20s uh-huh. but it finally gets to the area where our family is living what is it what is this kifagio kifagio is a destocking uh-huh. like literally taking animals away from africa wow mm-hmm. That and was an actual, actual policy, policy government wow. policy, right? Yeah. And so, in in this first, area, first mm-hmm. they took the lands, yes. Then the definition of wealth, which is the livestock, yes, right. because it's preventing you guys from being destitute enough to work for them. Mm-hmm. So they said they put up a policy, and the policy was you cannot have more than five goats. How yep. do you imagine what that means to 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 a moyekoyo? You mm-hmm. can't no ratio is not a thing. Because you can't even amass enough goods for, to ration their hundred you're supposed to, and wow, any any self-respecting Moyokoyo had hundreds of goods, goods yeah, if not thousands, if yeah. not thousands. And so here they come and they say nope, and they take them first to themselves. They take the best, and anything they don't want, they just slaughter. This is what's happening. So in in this particular area, uh, in the Laikipia area, the Kiani area, there was actually a Mzungu who had an agency called Kuvu Kuvu. The Mzungu is called Siton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was his job. This talking. Wow. And he so he'd come in, he's like a big burly dude with with his uh, ragtag uh, you know, workers mm-hmm. and their job was to haul away livestock. Um and sometimes use those um opportunities to even, you know, break you, you know. Like um you know remember we we talked about Doromeshia uh, Geshego I don't even remember that like mm-hmm. lambs that were kept mm-hmm. inside for, the for Magogona, for Magogona yeah, yeah. in the right? woman's house in yeah. the woman's house like mm-hmm. beautiful uh, any yeah. uh, you know blemish free right were meant for god mm-hmm. uh, fattened basically they would come in and just slit at the throat of uh, those Dorome mm-hmm. and just let the thing run away and just bleed and die for no reason other than horrify you yeah. you know and the wazir would be so incensed and just so pained it broke a lot of people's spirits you know just seeing their flocks being decimated like that and the part of the reason why they could easily do it to in, in areas like this is because remember we now you, <laughs> our family is a quarter family mm. living on the land of this mzungu quote unquote mm. mm. and so you don't have too many rights 
you're within there. And, and, and the Mzungu is just saying, I don't want you having that many cattle. It's not good for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. And then they come and they fagia. And that's why you call it fagia, kufagia, you know, mm-hmm. to, to sweep. To sweep um, the broom. Yeah, so that's what's happening. Um, so people are just, you know, from a Derenkimati's perspective and people in Nyeri, that's what's happening to them mm-hmm. during this time. It's just adding to the to the pain of yeah. what they experience. You've already, you know, you no longer have your land. Now you can't even have animals. You're being taxed. Any things are just, it's getting worse every single and day. And there's a drought on top. And there's a drought on top. And the reason why you don't have the food is because food is being rerouted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so it just becomes, you know, an untenable situation. And a lot of the youth start rebelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but... Um, you know, he left there soon. Uh, he left that after that Kifagio thing. It was it really pissed off a lot of people. Even even our family left. Mm-hmm. Um, they were like, hey, we can't sustain ourselves. A, yeah, let's go back to Teto and see what we're going to, how right. we're going to survive, even if it's not going to be great. But um, you know, after that, he tried various jobs. Um, he, 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 it is told that he did some teaching. Yeah, he taught. Yeah, yeah, he did uh, clerical roles in different places. Um, in '46. Yeah, it is said that um, he becomes a disciple of K. Kau, now Kenya mm-hmm. Africa Union at mm-hmm. that time, uh, which is at this point really at the forefront of agitating for independence. Mm-hmm. Um, he was attending meetings frequently, you know, kind of kept himself informed. Uh, and then he gets married to Elsie uh, Mokami, mm-hmm. uh, who we will be talking about later in the season, yeah. um, around 1949. They get married, and then of course they would have go and would have a, a beautiful family later. Um, so in 1952, fast forward a little bit, he's elected the Secretary General of Kau mm-hmm. in the Thompson Falls area. Mm-hmm. What was Kau doing? Kenya African Union. Mm. So was this it is an agitation movement. Give us some context. It's a political party, right? Mm-hmm. A, at this point, it's a legit political party. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they even have representation in LegCo, if they I'm not do. wrong. Yeah. Like first, you know, Akina, Eliud Mathu uh, are now real politicians representing African interests. I think Moi is now with a different outfit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these people are now, they're being hard, yeah. but it's not its not working out. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so now, um, Kau would have been the predecessor of, uh, was a, came after KCA, mm-hmm. Kikuyu Central Association, that had now at that point been banned. Right. And so this is now the new way that they can participate politically. Uh, so he was there. So he, you know, he was preaching, uh, you know, about, you know, what they should be doing. He was, he was moving around. He was, an inf- he, he was, he was informing the masses. Um, and, you know, he just wanted to see that they get their land back. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was moving around the area of Thompson Falls. That which is now in Yahururu, mm-hmm. uh, Olkalao, um, an area called the Shao, and really most of Nyeri district mm-hmm. uh, was kind of like his area where he was moving around and you know agitating. Um, so at this point, uh, I think um, is when they start to administer all things mm. uh, because now they're becoming pretty radicalized. Yeah, mm. uh, this is beginning of '52. Okay. And the Maumau, you know, now people are joining Maumau. It's not Ati Maumau. It's yeah. It's we are in Aidaka. Yeah, people and people have been already in, like moving, doing different things, but there isn't like a central command, mm-hmm. you know. 
but there's a lot of resistance because mm-hmm. it was just organic initially yeah. people were just upset they're like no i'm not going to do this anymore we people have left the mashamba people are like ah we're not going to be forced to do this so mm-hmm. there's an organic movement uh and but now we know for sure that beginning of 52 he's administering oaths okay and i don't know if you know what we're talking about when we say administering oaths maybe wayak you can explain that a little bit so um there's actually an interesting book called the power of the oath uh it talks about how the maumau uh would administer oaths and an oath uh, even previous to uh the maumau uh movement was something that we use in our culture mm-hmm. to create binding covenants not agreements mm-hmm. covenants mm-hmm. uh it and it would be a covenant between the person taking the two parties taking the oath mm-hmm. and god which would have severe ramifications or results if the covenant was not kept or if you went against the covenant yeah, yeah. so our culture and many other cultures view oaths as very serious covenants that have a binding um spiritual tie that is uh if if breached would have severe consequences for the person breaching the oath so when when we say he started administering oaths it means the people who are joining the resistance mm-hmm. had to get into a covenant to deliver certain things that they were supposed to do and not to go against mm-hmm. the oath so how was the oath was their blood involved you know like just high level what what's involved in the oathing that's a good question I, i i don't think we want to go into the details of what was in the oath uh-huh. uh in terms of the materials used i i think that's a subject for uh you know not on camera uh discussion but oath many things were used to administer oaths that okay. are actually in the public domain uh certain things like we 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 hear about korigadege uh which was uh a way to administer an oath we hear about the the uh, stone called gedadi that had seven holes there were several instruments used by the mogekoyo to administer an oath okay okay yeah. all right yeah. let's continue with dedan mr yeah, kimathi so back to back to field marshal mm-hmm. at this point he's not field marshal yeah. yet yeah. um back to dedan kimathi uh, the early 50, by early 52 actually most of kikuyu kikuyu country had taken and their first oath. Uh-huh. This oath was men and women. Ah yeah, everybody. Yani probably even children. Mm-hmm. Everyone was taking an oath at this point where they were you know they, they were kind of putting their their what, what's that, you know, their, their heart and soul, their heart and their soul, soul into mm-hmm. into resisting right yeah. right and what's ima- amazing is this is around 1952 so it took us a good 11 oh yeah or so years this, right exactly. the, you know yeah. it's building mm-hmm. up right. by by this point literally everyone has taken that oath right and everybody's already uh we're on the same page either you're either on the side of the home guard yeah. or mm-hmm. you're now part of the mamao uh, yeah. resistance yeah. and it's an organic thing that's just happening yeah. and these leaders are coming together and there's and now even at this point um leaders of kau are coordinating efforts now mm. you know there's real coordination um most of the 50s right proper coordination of uh, maumau movement has happened and so even the o thing is said to have been led kind of centrally from within the kau 
coordination, even though they always used to say, no, we're not the ones doing it. Right. It was a secret. It was a secret. Yeah. And even within Kau, um, people like Bildad Kagia are said to have been in the inn mm-hmm. and people like Jomo Kenyatta were not. Mm. Like there was a secret within even, the secret. even within the secret. <laughs> yeah. Of people who are actually the ones who are coordinating Mau Mau movement and doing the oath taking. Mm. So so that um and I think it was intentional. So that you know they they would allow the face of Kau to speak and say what they know without necessarily you know yeah. associating yeah. themselves with exactly the, and they uh, and it's true they didn't know so whatever mm. they were saying they believed it. Um, but so this is where we see, um, you know, militarization is happening. Mm-hmm. They're learning how to, um, do things like scouting. People are being taught these activities in, in the particularly in that area of Nyeri. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what then Kamathi is now involved in the second warrior oath. Mm. That one might include more paraphernalia, but we're not going to get into it. Um, (laughs) But this is a bit more serious, right? And there are many oaths, by the way, within the warrior oath codes. Um, But um, now, you know, know, most of the devoted people, there were people like, you know, Stanley Mathenge, you know, General Shaina, among others, Mm -hmm. uh, are in the forefront at this point Mm -hmm. and are very well organized in, you know, obviously everyone is a volunteer. Nobody was being paid. Um, and they're ready to lead. And they're already fighting. They're now they're raiding. There's proper skirmishes are happening everywhere. Um, um, so, of course, towards the end of uh, 52, things really escalate. And they escalated because in, on October, 7, uh, October 7th, 1952, mm-hmm. Momo eliminated Paramount Chief Warohio. Mm-hmm. Mm who was the darling of the colonial government. Mm-hmm. Yani, he, I think he used to drive a Rolls Royce or something. <laughs> he was really, yeah. uh, sorry, it was a Buick. A Buick, yeah. yeah. Okay. In Kikui, we call it Bioki. <laughs> he used to drive, yeah. And he was so well-loved, beloved by the colonial government mm-hmm. because he was their main pillar. Mm-hmm. And he represented everything. They're like, if only we could have two more of these guys, you know? Yeah. And he would be would be set. Um, so, in, so October seven fifty two, he's assassinated. Okay. In a very humiliating fashion. Ah. Uh, very humiliating. How? There are photos. Just okay. go look. Okay. Uh, and um, after that elimination of, um, then there's another elimination later that month of uh, senior chief Deriwang Obe. Mm. This name should be familiar. This mm. is Wangobe Waihora's son, son. Uh, who okay. has now become a collaborator. Whoa. Wangobe that we talked about in episode three. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's an, it's, an, it's an interesting story because as Wangobe Waihora was passing on, he had identified Deri Wangobe, mm-hmm. who was 12, yeah. as the person to take over the mantle yeah. mm-hmm. and had urged the other Kiyama elders to make sure he doesn't li- he doesn't grow up without a father. Yeah. So they they nurtured him, mm-hmm. and he did become this chief. But for some reason, somewhere down the line, uh, he turns. Mm-hmm. And w- when I talked to my dad because he they knew him, they was they were saying you know he wasn't actually a bad chief. Um, he really tried to guard his people and protect them. Mm-hmm. But 
there were things that were being asked to do, including my own father. They were being asked to uh, dig moats, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. around villages. Now, this was either Amiro had happened. And basically, I don't know if you know this, but at this point, Kikuyus are living in concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That have They've been moved. Tunnels yeah. that yeah. you can't jump cross over. You can't jump. Yeah. yeah, you they've dug those uh, tunnels, those moats. To keep you. trenches. Yeah. yeah. And then they've set these spikes, uh, spikes nyabo, yeah. mm-hmm. inside them. And they're trying to separate the Maumaus and the people mm-hmm. and kind of make sure there's no contact and no support. But they were still crossing and they were still getting food and right. supplies and they were still coming in and giving oaths inside right. the, those colonial era villages. Mm-hmm. But now the digging of things like moats was such a treacherous... You know, you're talking about a village with thousands of people. So, you know, don't imagine yeah. at the CG 100 huts. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh, we're talking about a huge area yeah. and then you have to fence it and then you have to dig uh, around, trenches yeah. around it, huge moats, huge enough to where you don't think Maumaus will make it. I want you to visualize what that makes. There's actually, actually pictures. Yes. There are pictures of this on, uh, huge. on uh, several books wow. on mm. how the moats like, looked. Exactly. Like it, this is like, it's, it is inspired by uh, castle mentality mm. in, the, in the Europe mm-hmm. where everyone was living Outside, behind yeah. a particular fence, yeah. a wall, and then a huge moat were being dug. Yeah. Moats or even like rivers. Yes, or rivers, water bodies. Water bodies. Yeah. Any, People could not cross over. Yeah, so they, this is something they knew very well how to do, right? Yeah. And they were trying to recreate it in these villages. Mm. And they knew it, it works. It limits, and even psychologically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they, this is what's happening. And the digging of the moats, because my father was involved, uh, was, he said he almost, you know, he, he knew he was, he was actually pretty sure he was going to die. Mm how gruesome it was because he was a youth. Wow. It was a really young boy. And it was at that point that he he was like, I have to get out of here. Yeah. And um, he managed to um, convince this guy uh, who was a teacher at like a local school that, hey, I can, I can help you mm. teach, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can help you teach. I can be your assistant. helper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, can be your teaching assistant. Yeah. And he was given the job. And but when he got the job, he was saying he wasn't even he was given nothing. He wasn't even given a cup of tea for his for his labor. Mm-hmm. And the guy was mukumu kabisa. Like I gave nothing. But anyway, this is. But maybe he didn't have it to give, yeah, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but these these were um, this is what's happening in that yeah. time. Thing, life is very tough, very and different. everyone you talk to will tell you. Yeah. Life was extremely hard. Mm. People were hungry. They mm. were tired. They were overtaxed. They were under constant threat of violence. You know, Kipande system. Any any time, anything could happen. Any you were living in fear. You were a prisoner. You were a prisoner. You were Pretty slave. much. In yeah. Own yeah. Land. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So that, yeah, that's what's happening. So and once Chief uh, Deriwang Obe was was killed in this area, um, you know, Warohio had been. Killed in Nairobi, near Nairobi. Mm-hmm. Now in Nyeri, what Deri has died in the same month. And in between there, that's when the state of emergency was declared. Mm. Between the two deaths. Okay. Uh, and now that changes everything. Mm-hmm. You thought life was tough? It got even uh, worse. It escalated. And Deren Kemathi at this point became a wanted man. And they, they knew he was he was the one leading the the regiment that killed uh, Deri Wang Obe. So they would put a 10,000 shilling reward mm-hmm. um, on him, on his head. Now he's a wanted man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to define the state of emergency that was declared in 52, it really was 
a nationwide curfew and limited movement uh, limited association mm-hmm. so it made it very difficult for uh, it basically it was imposed to limit the infiltration and the movement free movement of people mm-hmm. in general yeah. so life became even more tough yeah. mm-hmm. than before this is where you see passbook really coming to focus mm-hmm. you can't move from district to district within your own land okay. you can't go from nyeri to kiambu without passing through a check Point. What does that remind you of? It's uh, the COVID, COVID restrictions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It was tough. Right. It was, yeah, yeah. The COVID restrictions, which a lot of Kenyans mm-hmm. complained about. Right. It's mm-hmm. the same sort of thing that was happening in, in 52. Yeah. 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 And, and you have to have like a note on your passbook from your, whoever your employer is mm-hmm. saying that, yes, I have approved this guy to move, to, to go visit, I don't know, his mm-hmm. mother. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is that you wanted to go back home to do, right. you couldn't unless your employer has said, Yeah, yeah, he's allowed to do it. And uh, anyway, and and this is where now the genius of people like Dan Kamathi comes in because they knew how to forge yes. these kinds of writings yes. and write letters. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when the organization part has a lot to do with ability to circumvent yeah. these rules that were being placed on you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These guys were very good at it. Um forging letters was like a daily thing. Mm-hmm. Forging passbooks, you know, making new ones to so that mm-hmm. your guys can move around. Yeah. Um so but it is at this point after uh, uh, operation Jock Scott mm. is mm-hmm. launched mm-hmm. that a lot of people especially the Abadeya area uh North Teto mm-hmm. those people the divisions around Nyeri district they just flew right into the forest including my bra- my, my my dad's two brothers yeah. two elder brothers that's the day they went we're in 100% Let's and they go. all went into the into the forest the two were moturi and kafara mm-hmm. um so they went in and operation jocksocket was a scotch earth campaign we're talking about heavy aerial bombing and it's not that the way you're imagining you know sometimes they they show us just askaris yeah. and mostly mm-hmm. black of black men with just one mzungu leading them going into a forest mm-hmm. it wasn't that Mm-hmm. It was a major operation. They brought in regiments from England, from India, wow. from Tanganyika, from Uganda. They brought in jets. What? Yes. It was a real military war. It was a war. It was a yeah. proper war. Yeah. And they had all this post-World War II hardware that they yeah. were bringing in. There were oh tanks, there were everything. They were and they knew they had a in, in, in fact there was an idea to flatten Mount Kenya forest. Mm-hmm. Like just trauma the whole forest. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was what they were saying. They're hiding there, just aerial bomb the thing and just trauma the whole thing. And they tried. Just carpet bomb, basically. They did. They tried. Yeah. They bought, they threw so many bombs in there. Oh yeah. my gosh. In Kikuyu, we used to call them degashi age konyo. The airplanes with the, with the mukoyo. Because yeah. they would open the, yeah. the belly and yeah. they would yeah. drop a bomb. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's a very funny story that they tell about how... Um, one day my my dad is telling me how they they the the, the mamau regiment that he's young, the younger of the brothers was in kavara who he was fighting under a general called Gaitabomu who was who was one of the lieutenants of Dedan Kemathi mm-hmm. and then the other brother was fighting directly under Dedan Kemathi mm-hmm. remember that he knew them from childhood mm-hmm. so these were trusted to him right so but Gaitabomu's regiment often used to come through my dad's village mm-hmm. and one time they came with a gunia 
that was carrying and, and an exploded bomb ah, that had been dropped like a right. shell like <coughs> yeah. Bomb shell. yeah yeah, yeah. so it hadn't yeah. exploded mm-hmm. so and there was like so because he used to come there all the time to be fed and and the plan was okay what do we do but now the propaganda mm-hmm. was that omau they've been able to create rifles they've designed bombs and now they have even a massive tan bomb mm-hmm. that they have now made themselves yeah, yeah. you know mau mau ena bomu now that was now the story that was now right vumaying <laughs> <laughs> everywhere uh-huh. mau have now uh-huh. gotten bombs uh-huh. this fight is about to change it's you about know to, uh-huh. and so what they did apparently they're trying to figure out what to do with this bomb they don't know how to detonate it mm-hmm. ah one guy said ah, easy, these things are all about fire so they took a lot of paraffin funga do the magunia poured the the thing in front of the when they set it in a strategic area mm-hmm. and just lit it on fire and the thing lipukad and, uh. and it was all like wow and people were like oh my god you know this is happening we yeah. have bombs you know wow. and it was such a, a, a moment where uh, people just collective uh, hope yeah collective yeah. hope that you yeah. know we can do something about this yeah. mm-hmm. uh, that was a general gaita bomb he's like he's a guy who <laughs> that's why he got the name yeah. um but now they are you know they're out there they're fighting in the forest um bombers are coming in and yeah. you know so you know but there was this really scary night uh, mm. that, that my father told me about um where um, you know there were staggering casualties mm. following the bombing mm-hmm. uh, one man in particular they call Modara Modara was an elder mm-hmm. um all day he had been in pensive fear mm. and when that evening the bombing started he started he just urinated himself wow and people were so shocked because it was not it was completely out of character and you yeah. don't expect that from an elder yeah. mm-hmm. especially an elder of his stature mm-hmm. but it turns out he lost nine sons that wow. day wow. from the bombing from the bombing nine mm-hmm. and that's what he had felt in his heart yeah but the next day they found out yeah nine sons died yeah and on that they unfortunately the same day my uncle kavara died mm. you know and uh, also because of that particular carpet bombing that was happening in the forest uh and soon after that my other uncle was uh, actually captured and sent to manyani concentration camp uh where he would be tortured for five years yeah to give up mau mau wow. yeah but that you know it, it was a heavy price yeah, for for people I think that's the big thing is to realize what people give up for us. I think sometimes we don't recognize how bad it was. Yeah. And it was, that's why I'm loving yeah. this story just to help us see the magnitude of what they had to face mm-hmm. for us to be here today. Yeah. I'll add some context. There's a song, uh, there's a group that used to sing uh, traditional Kikuyu songs for uh, the first president of Kenya, uh, Jomo Kenyatta. Uh, they were called Nyakenyuwa. You can actually find their albums on YouTube. And uh, a few years ago, I was listening to their songs. And, you know, you can, when these stories are told, you might think the war happened in a month, mm-hmm. uh, two months, a week. So the, the song goes like this. They're singing. They're like, Meaka, it's called Meaka, Meaka, which is years, right? So they, they sing, 
miaka mugwaja itwa turaga githaka twanagirirwo na ndege tugitagwo mau mau twameretie guo ya wo itanya mucia githaka like basically they were in the forest fearing bombs and you know planes would come and be like hey the mau mau are here they start bombing it wasn't a days affair it was years years of fear years of living in the forest uh some some of them when they came out from the forest in 63 they didn't have any clothes yeah imagine living living in that fear for a whole decade for example from 52 to 63 in the forest near badea uh you know you don't have a shower you don't have a a, a change of clothes you're dealing with animals uh it, it, uh, and and the weather rain yeah. uh, can you just picture that picture of 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 how they were living uh and how determined they still were to resist yeah. this occupation i mean think about us if you know like think about how us you skip one meal or two you Where? think you've The, right the world is over you don't shower one day you think right mm. and to recognize just the commitment and the suffering they put themselves under mm-hmm. for us to have this freedom i have i'm just going to say this on the side and then we'll go back to the story of dedan but i have friends whose um family were part of the maumau the fighters these and now i can start to understand where there is some of this anger mm-hmm. for their people being left behind mm-hmm. once we had independence because mm-hmm. you can imagine all that sacrifice and then you're left behind mm-hmm. yeah <sighs> what was it for yeah anyway. that energy is still in in their descendants it's to this there. day it's it is there. those sentiments are very real till today yeah um yeah but that's um you know that then kemathi rose to this particular occasion in brilliant fashion because um he would now formally they would formally form Kenya Land and Freedom Army mm. and he rose very fast through the ranks he coordinated things they even had a, like a constitution they had clear military uh precise guidelines, uh, guidelines mm-hmm. rules of uh, of engagement um like one of one of the things that they did they, there's even a song that said you know even if one bean was the one, what they had they used mm. to share it yeah. you know they, they they had the highest standards mm. of discipline and camaraderie and brotherhood even when they were first and sisterhood there were there were women who were actually fighters in there with them mm-hmm. i know most of the time we hear about women supplying them food mm-hmm. and information mm-hmm. but it was even women fighters and yeah. we'll, men- we'll mention them yeah we'll mention, we'll mention some of these people as we go even mm-hmm. children because mm-hmm. my father is one of those kids who was a scout mm-hmm. you know they would be asked to go and give uh, coordinates uh, what, how many soldiers did you see you know that kind of stuff Yeah, and they would feed that information back and it, they, mama was not always in the forest mm-hmm. yeah there were there were also some people were turncoats you know people who you know kwa they were higas within mm-hmm. the people who mm-hmm. were pretending to be colonial mm-hmm. but, but they were actually mama informants and vice versa, vice versa yeah. right yeah. a lot of that was happening so to navigate these things as a leader um, we, you know 
Kimathi did very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so by 1954, he had, he had been given the title of Field Marshal Dedan Kimathi mm-hmm. Matemo, Knight Commander of the African Empire. Mm-hmm. That was his official title. Mm-hmm. They were not playing. They were not thinking Kenya alone. Mm-hmm. They were yeah. thinking about the demise of the British Empire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they were well aware of what they were trying to do here. Um, so anyway, he did he did a lot. He established a lot of fighting camps. Apparently, he had about I think there were eight armies. Mm-hmm. Um, there were people like General Maria Wariyama, Wariyama Wariyama in in, uh, in Mero. Mm-hmm. Embu had their own people in Kirinyaga. There were any there were so many regiments very well positioned mm-hmm. in Kiambu. There were operations, and this thing was very well coordinated and had one leader, mm-hmm. which was Field Marshal Dedan Kemal. Wow, um, something that was it happened so fast. Mm-hmm. And it was it was done. He even reached, I would say, you know, mythical status mm-hmm. while he was alive. Yeah. yeah, because you know he was hitting police stations. You know, he was raiding small armories. They were getting guns. They were creating their own guns and manufacturing their own guns. They were very effective. If you go to a place like in Nairobi, uh, the archives, Kenya National mm-hmm. Archives, you'll see those guns. Some samples of the guns that they were making. They were mm-hmm. actually they worked. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did um kill settlers mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was a ta- it was a very primary target to do that they they decided they were going to use fear as a main tactic mm-hmm. um they they also killed a lot of loyalists mm-hmm. a lot of kikuyus who were loyalists mm-hmm. um in fact those were the most yeah. casualties yeah. in this particular engagement um but you know and, and then in in all of this he still had humor because you know on finding out that the colonial government did not have a photo of him uh-huh. <laughs> he sent them one <laughs> of himself that's hilarious yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah you're like ah here you go you know make sure you make a nice good poster <laughs> you know <laughs> put it in the new york times yeah you know so you know so you know and, but when i say mythical status there were people who thought he could disguise himself as a white man. Ah, uh, okay. Those are the stories that were yeah. like, ah, Kimathi, Kimathi yeah. can change. Right. right. He, he can even, he can even pass here. And always join here. Like, you wouldn't tell. Because yeah. they were like, he, even, he can even, he can even turn himself into uh, being a leopard. Yeah. yeah actually, <laughs> yeah, one story it. that's told about him is uh, he could, he could make or imitate all the animals, animals. in the forest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the colonial administration, the, the guards would be coming to look for him, searching for Mau Mau, and he would make this, the, the trumpet of an elephant, yeah. and they'd be freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or he would sound like a rhino, and right. rhinos are feared, because yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll run you over. And so he would make, he could, the the mythical stories that are told about Dedan Kemathi mm-hmm. are, are legendary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you know the leopard one was really real because he did he did have leopard skins on him. Mm-hmm. It was not understood. This was also esoteric. What he was, you know, leopard skins go back mm-hmm. in, in many African traditions. Mm-hmm. Elders wore leopard skins, mm-hmm. and even uh, you know, and, and warriors who were in the leadership did that. It, it carries a lot of meaning. Yeah. <clears throat> but they be, they kind of started, you know, Wazungu would believe that he, he can be in multiple places at the same time. 
because they would hear he was here and then could uh, teleport in the yeah. afternoon it's like he's here yeah, right. and so there was a lot of fear yeah. about Jiran Kemathi that was created and he was the original black panther yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah this guy they, they yeah. feared him you know yeah. but um so but sadly you know he would be arrested when was he arrested <clears throat> so this was october 21st uh, 1956 and he was shot um by a guy called Dirago mm. uh, who was he was working under this is really a, an, an overzealous um colonial fi- uh, guy called Ian Henderson who really he, all he did was hunt for Dan Kimathi he didn't even focus on anything else and so eventually they trapped him mm. and he was actually in his hometown of Karona in so in Karona in the forest I've actually been to the spot where he was shot because when he was shot in his leg he where they caught up with him where he had been bleeding yeah um I've been to that spot and it's true nothing grows there wow it's in, it's in the middle of a tea bush mm-hmm. and that spot doesn't grow anything when I was wow. 17 I went there it was in the middle mm-hmm. of a tea bush and it was a bare spot mm-hmm. and even recently as an adult Now there's a monument they've built there. Mm-hmm. Uh but it's the same it doesn't grow anything. Mm-hmm. And nobody's doing not even grass. It's wow. bare soil. Wow. So again this adds to this myth yeah. you know of who this who this guy was. But mm-hmm. anyway, he was he when he was shot he was arrested um I think he had a machete on him but this it wasn't in in, in a rifle uh, or a gun, a revolver actually. <clears throat> And that's what he was charged with the official charge was having an illegal firearm mm. because he can't prove anything else right um so he was taken away in a stretcher um there was a lot of propaganda stuff being distributed to demoralize maumau about it yeah they took pictures of him and yeah. videos mm-hmm. the videos that we see yeah those videos we see now mm-hmm. they they were you know propagandized and you know people were really disheartened the mau mm-hmm. mau effort mm-hmm. it really suffered when it took he a big was, blow it took a big blow when he was arrested mm-hmm. uh then of course there's a trial um which everyone will tell you was a sham trial mm-hmm. some guy called justice o'connor was uh, the guy who was given that and then an all jury um uh, kenyan all all black jury but when we talk about juries <laughs> the, the way Uh, evidence was gathered against most of these mama folks mm-hmm. was through people we call like akonia mm-hmm. you may have heard that term akonia mm-hmm. mm-hmm. were people who literally were draped in gunias mm-hmm. a garni sack mm-hmm. and with little holes yeah and they would just literally this whoever this person is under that gunny yeah would give testimony wow. against you yeah and would say yeah that guy's mama yeah and that's it you're done they didn't need anything Any else mm-hmm. so the threshold for finding you guilty was very low ah, was very low yeah they had what seemed like a legitimate they needed to have a good yeah. show yeah um he was found guilty and uh was actually sentenced to death mm. at this point so the you know there's a book by Gogadi Ongo and Michelle Mugo who in they wrote a book called the the, the trial of Dan Kimathi mm-hmm. it, it paints a very heroic Dan Kimathi because even you know an extraordinary man when he was sentenced to death he actually laughed mm-hmm. 
Uh, and that's it. That's all he did. He just laughed at the, at the, at the judge like, come on, what is that? That's mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. And so, but there was a legal appeal uh, lodged against the death sentence, but it, it didn't go through. And so, um, it became clear he was going to be executed. And on the day of execution, um, he did. Re- he wrote a letter to some guy called Father Marino, mm-hmm. asking him to get his son an education. Mm-hmm. He, had, he only had one son, Washiuri. Okay. I think he had six daughters. One of the daughters we know about the most is called Wajogo. She right now leads a lot of uh, efforts to uh, to rehabilitate and secure lands for Mau Mau fighters. Wow, yeah. that's good. Um, so she, anyway, he, he, he said, yeah, I am asking you to educate my son. He also wrote a letter to Mokami <clears throat> and uh, about Mokami um, to this guy. Telling him that hey, Mokami has been detained as well. She's at committee. She was, yeah. She was yeah. in prison at the time. That they were both the, the same prison, committee maximum prison. Yeah. And that's his wife. Yeah, his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And you know, he's he suspected that they were going to release her. Yeah. Um and was asking this Father Marino, you know, I'd like her to be comforted by the sisters of the Catholic Church. Mm. You know, um, because you know, and she was saying oh, the particular sister called Sister Modesta who they knew. She was saying, well, Sister Modesta is lonely and I'm sure my wife is going to be lonely after this. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can hook them up, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, those were he thought and then he asked to see his wife and he did. And then the mo- that morning of the execution, um, they chatted for about two hours mm-hmm. and one of the things that he told her uh, was that, I, you know, in quote, you know, I have no doubt in my mind that the British are determined to execute me. Mm. I've committed no crime. My only crime is that I am a Kenyan revolutionary mm. who led a liberation army. Wow. Now I must leave you and my family. I have nothing to regret about. My blood will water the tree of independence. Mm. And those are his last famous words that we know about. <clears throat> um, so in 57, February 18, he was reported hanged at Committee Maximum Prison. And uh, that's really where the official story of Darren Kemathi ends. Um, but not the end of his legacy and not the end of even his mythic status. Like there's this gentleman who is a chairman of Mamao Veterans Association. He's called Elijah Kenyua. Mm-hmm. He was uh, General Bahati back then. Mm-hmm. He, he, he says no. Darren Kemathi wasn't killed that day. Mm. He wasn't hung. Because, you know, they don't know where he was buried. Yeah. They say oh, it, was, it was an unmarked grave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He said no. He, what he says is that what happened is that Queen Elizabeth was adamant that he, she wanted to see this Kemathi who yeah. was so defiant against <laughs> the empire. Mm-hmm. And so he believes that they took him and to, probably to go parade him out there mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the private course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's it. I mean, you know, we... That's the story of Dan Kemathi. What was he fighting for? I must remind everyone there were three things. Mm. Gedaka, which mm-hmm. is land. Mm-hmm. Weyadi, which is freedom. Freedom. And Magogona. Mm-hmm. Magogona are our shrines. Yeah. Our, yeah. Yeah. And our rituals. Like our, our ritual. way of life. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. 
I mean, I don't have anything to add. What a story. Yeah. What sacrifice. What a legend, right, of a man. Mm-hmm. I mean, any final words, Waiyaki? Yeah, the only thing I'll say, I think something that's not uh, put into the public domain as much is he was a prolific writer. Mm. So one of the ways he was able to strategize and, and bring all these people together is he would write letters. Mm-hmm. He, would, he knew how to communicate. He knew how to organize. I think apart from his courage, his um, prowess as a leader, he was also able to manage and organize and communicate effectively. Uh, and there are, ma- there are many books published where his letters have been published. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can read them and see how um, smart he was, how intelligent and mm-hmm. compassionate too. Uh, so yeah, he was he was a prolific writer as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, King Ori, for sharing this powerful story of Dedan Kimathi. And thank you, Waiyaki, for your contributions. Thank you. So at this point, uh, we are coming up to the next hero. So Waiyaki, yes. who is the next hero that we'll be talking about? So uh, as a follow-up to this uh, episode, we'll be talking about um, Mokami Kemadi, uh, who was dead and Kemadi's wife. She was also a freedom fighter. And we'll also talk about the only field marshal, uh, who, uh, the only woman who became a field marshal in the resistance movement. I can't wait. Well, listen to the end and we'll see you on the next episode.